Thank you so much for joining us for Mental Health Awareness Week. The theme of Mental Health Awareness Week is loneliness. And today we're going to talk about depression, delirium, dementia. We're going to talk about inpatient settings and of course, probably reflect on the pandemic because that'll be a time where people were feeling particularly lonely because they were so isolated. And I guess we just didn't have the same networks around us that we did. As a mental health professional, what was your experience of the pandemic in terms of loneliness? What did you see patients go through? Hi, Ella. Uh, it is really an important aspect of our my day to day working life since the pandemic started, even though loneliness is not a new uh, concept, but our patients became even more like lonely during the pandemic. Uh, I suppose uh, the way I would put it as like a, the viral pandemic was one aspect, but because of that, some of our vulnerable patients who are also vulnerable to the uh, virus were shielding and then some of their family members also were shielding, which ended up they were not able to have adequate social connections or able to meet their friends and families and not even professionals. So clearly some of our, especially like our older adults and other vulnerable uh, population, including people with enduring mental illness, they were probably, you know, quite disabled because of this pandemic, purely of not able to access adequate physical health care, adequate social health care. Okay, and we had a little chat just before the podcast started mm -hmm. about the end of life services and the kind of loneliness people might have been feeling if they're approaching the end of their life. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you kind of um, provided support? I think uh, what we found was obviously, you know, the pandemic hit the whole population uh, and acute hospitals were overwhelmed, uh, ICUs were overwhelmed. Uh, and uh, what we found, uh, uh, you know, many inpatient units were quite overwhelmed with admissions as well as delay in discharge and patients who have come for mental health difficulty having to suffer with COVID and some of them even dying. So it it was uh, it was about how we provide that care and support, even though we had all the infection prevention control measures uh, to safeguard our staff and safeguard our other vulnerable patients. Uh, we had to take a call on how we support some of our patients, especially the patients who are coming to the end of life uh, unrelated to COVID. Uh, and then it's about how we provide support to the family for them to say goodbyes and also for them to have that opportunity to have that interaction. So we did various things that supported both the patients and the family because if there was an outbreak within the ward, it was very difficult to get external people in purely because of the fear of spread of infection at the time. But we managed to get like some specific areas where patients could meet their family members, isolated areas, as well as uh, use of iPad technology uh, to 
you know, make video calls to family uh, and on case by case, some patients we may have to use, uh, you know, barrier uh, methods to bring the family member in to support them if, if it is what that is needed. So in summary, even though we couldn't do everything what we did pre-COVID, we were able to do some person-centered approach and providing that compassionate care, which uh, I did a, a review of uh, some of our COVID deaths in our inpatient units. And uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, from the summary I could see from the evidence was uh, the patients were offered a very good death in that that they, they had a, a experience, both the families, that they were constantly kept in the loop, kept informed and provided support. And in terms of dementia, because you work with a lot of people with dementia, what would people's experience of loneliness be like? Yeah, when, when you think of people with dementia or people who have got some memory problem not yet diagnosed with dementia, uh, those are the people, to me, significantly affected in the last two years. Uh, the first one, if you think of people already who have dementia, the, but still managing reasonably well in the community, those patients, uh, they lost their equilibrium, they lost their routineness because they all are used to their routine of like, you know, getting up, going to a bank or a post office to get their pension and do their weekly shopping, you know, pop in to have a coffee with a friend or a group of people, you know, go for, you know, either a golf or a, anything that they did normally uh, and go to the club and meet family members on a such, such certain days. So they just lived for that clockwork type of regular structure that kept them going and also kept their uh, you know, deterioration slightly under pause. Uh, but unfortunately with the pandemic, as I mentioned, uh, they were shielding and the family were worried about giving the virus to the you know, the loved ones. So they tried to not to see them that often. I, I could hear stories where uh, the sons and daughters are worried about popping into moms and dads because they worry that they will give the virus to them. So they did like a door, you know, door drop of groceries and things, which significantly distressed our older adults. And the other group of population were they are just about developing cognitive impairment. Unfortunately, they were not able to go to services to be referred for memory clinic. But also when they were referred, you know, there had been a significant delay in assessments. But also what we found in the last year is that some of those patients who did not come to the knowledge of secondary services because they had mild memory problem, but just about managing. But the pandemic and the social isolation, uh, I would, even though it's not evidence-based, I would say from my clinical experience, almost like 
fast forwarded their dementia in that uh, they they started deteriorating even more rapidly than what they were in the few years and i am seeing a lot of new referrals who were reasonably fine pre pandemic and then getting worse so clearly uh, those who have mild problem became moderate and those who have already well established dementia they had a deterioration because of that lack of that community engagement and isolation and loneliness with having such extreme lockdowns do you think this was a catalyst for people's dementia so not having routine not having people in their life and you said earlier family and friends dropping off a shop at the door rather than going in why why is this kind of thing so distressing for someone with dementia because uh, it is not just about getting the material isn't it you know normally the sons or daughters would have popped in had a coffee with the mom and dad or they would have said come let's nip out for a coffee let's nip out for a friday fishy friday so they had that social connection the other thing i would say touch and feel you know that is something really important to our uh, vulnerable people and older adults so I, I remember like, you know, reading in social media, you know, they, they said I would die to have a hug with my dad. So it's like that, you know, skin to skin touch interaction, uh, you know, some of tactile support is important. So we found in uh, our acute hospitals when patients have delirium, uh, you know, which is another condition. Uh, the only way we could contain some of their agitation was just holding their hands. So just dropping grocery on the doorstep tick the uh, material need, but it not it did not tick the emotional and psychological need. That's really, really sad to hear and also just shows you that skin to skin contact isn't just important for babies and young children. It's so important for our lives. And do you think that the government were right to put in place such intense rules considering how much it's affected people unfortunately we, we are in a bit of a catch-22 i don't think you know it is uh, it's uh, it's not easy to say you know one is wrong and the other one is right however uh, i suppose people became innovative uh, i don't know whether you have seen in social media somebody you know wore a like a like a spacesuit type of thing and then went and hugged their loved one so people were making you know various ways of how they can overcome it like people were hugging them with the apron on and then they were using masks with a transparent window so that they could see the face because mask is another one uh, you know people are especially our older adults may have hard of hearing so they will usually lip read and because the, of the masks, you know, even today uh, I, I was struggling to communicate with one of my patients because they absolutely could not, uh, you know, hear me uh, because of my mask. So it can be tricky. And uh, I think government had to do what they had to do, but it is about that person-centeredness, you know, having that allowance that if there are, uh, you know, reason to believe something else would help, how we can overcome it and support and then that could have been my way of tackling that you also mentioned delirium earlier as well so delirium and dementia are similar but there are some differences would you mind talking us through the differences and how 
loneliness yeah. can affect someone with delirium? Yeah, so delirium is a is an acute condition, unlike dementia, which is like a chronic condition. Delirium is an acute episode of somebody getting confused. Uh, you know, acute uh, change in the mental state from their normal mental state. Generally, for delirium, there is an underlying cause, whereas with dementia, it is due to the degeneration of the brain cells. So delirium uh, is an acute uh, onset uh, syndrome, whereby there is a problem with people's attention, alertness and consciousness. So that there is a problem in their attention. Whereas in dementia, there is a, there is also a problem in attention and their cognition, but it is an long-standing, it's an ongoing thing. So with the delirium, there's usually an underlying cause, something like an infection or something like dehydration. And for that matter, even this lockdown, there are patients who developed frank delirium because their routine was affected. So when people you know, not take their medication or take more medication, not adequately drinking, all of them can cause delirium. So delirium is an acute uh, change in mental state, usually caused by an underlying physical health problem or an environmental problem. I also want to make a very important point. You know, this is something people question. Uh, can people with dementia get delirium? So. This is really, really important. I just want to, uh, uh, you, know, you know, hit on this fact. Delirium, even though it's an acute confusional state, it doesn't mean that people with like a long-standing memory problem cannot develop delirium. So there is a term we call it delirium superimposed dementia. So people who have long-standing dementia, when their physical health or environmental health is altered they can suffer from delirium. So we need to be mindful. Uh, just because somebody has got dementia doesn't mean that they can't get delirium. So that is important. Another important point is delirium should be detected and prevented because the, if we manage the risks, the severity of the delirium can be reduced and the risk of somebody de developing delirium can be reduced. What they found, there was a recent paper during the pandemic uh, done by one of our colleagues, Sarah Richardson in Newcastle. Uh, uh, it's called DECIDE study. She talks about uh, the severe the delirium, the longer the delirium, uh, they, their cognitive impairment, you know, they may end up with a longer term cognitive impairment. So it's almost uh, that paper indicates that uh, it, it may be a potential like a, a preventative measure for people developing dementia. If you tackle delirium, somebody developing dementia could be either delayed or prevented. So it is important to prevent and detect, detect and prevent delirium. People can have multiple mental health needs and multiple disorders. And the last one we want to talk about was depression. How many older people do you work with who struggle with depression? I would say 30 to 40 percent of our older adult mental health caseload uh, do have depression. So obviously, you know, significant number I, I deal with have dementia, but I do have a significant amount of patients who develop depression, uh, as well as some of our early dementia patients can have 
you know, coexisting depression as well. So depression is uh, uh, almost like uh, they will say it's another global pandemic, especially in older adults. It can it can be quite debilitating and restricting. That's actually a much higher percentage than I thought you were going to say. I didn't realise. I thought it would maybe be somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 percent. No, and that's my caseload. So in the community, it's slightly lower. So do you want me to reframe it for you? Yes, please. Okay, so depression is quite common, especially in older adults, uh, but there there is a variability in how depression uh, presents in the community or in a secondary care. So uh, about, uh, I think 10 to 25% of uh, a population in the community uh, could have depression, older adults. Out of that, probably only half of them will go and seek support in the uh, primary care, but even in those half of them who go and seek that support, only probably a third of them will get some form of medication, and there is significant lower number who will get psychological support. And then when it comes to depression in the like a patient's household, it's generally say nine to ten percent. Whereas in institutions like care homes, it can be up to 42%. So there's a significant number of patients in care, you know, in institutions, they can have depression. So in the community, it's about probably nine to 10%. Does that sound much more coherent, Ella? Yes, it does, yeah. But still in your own caseload, 30 to 40% is still really high. It is, yeah. Would someone with depression experience, I don't know, a terrible lot about it but if someone has depression will they feel loneliness more acutely or will they interpret things as feeling lonely more easily like or can you explain it a little bit more yeah so obviously depression in older adult it can present as slightly different you know obviously older adult they have multiple physical health problem as well uh, as well as environmental restrictions due to mobility and frailty so even to start with, they may feel that they are not up to the mark. So sometimes uh, they will try to normalize it. I'm bound to be a bit low. So they may not even seek help because they may not uh, be able to understand actually they are going through depression. The other bit is when people are isolated, people are lonely, it can trigger you know, changes in their mood, especially we noted during the pandemic, you know, some of our older adults lost their spouse who have been together for 50, 60 years. And, you know, grief is one thing, but people develop frank depression. So that's another thing we have seen. Uh, and also those who are living alone, they manage to live alone with a good network of friends and families and the social connection, as well as, you know, having a routine, the routine was significantly damaged and disrupted during the pandemic, which in which caused significant amount of distress. In turn, it caused worsening or new onset depression. For example, there are patients who will walk around supermarket, who will walk around town center, uh, you know, just to get their day passed by. They'll have an, go and sit and have a coffee uh, and then chat with you know, known and unknown people, and then get home, uh, which would be their routine, but that routine was 
disrupted. And significantly, some of the community hubs and community uh, like a day support facilities all have stopped, which meant that their their lifeline, some of their their community support was disrupted, uh, and it it did it did affect their mood. So loneliness definitely had an impact on either new onset depression or depression getting worse. And that kind of reminds people that if you see someone sitting by themselves or having a coffee by themselves or, you know, just kind of meandering around, it might be nice to speak to them. Yeah, I think it it is, especially I know in this current world, people are always frightened of having a chat. What do they think? But again, our generation of older adults, they, they are, you know, very sociable people and, you know, they they would just start commenting it's a nice day and it is nice to have a chat. And uh, I remember like, you know, talking to people in in airports or in, you know, supermarkets or in like a big shopping mall. Uh, and sometimes it's it's nice to, you know, give it to the community, you know, like they might just need a like a hold their hand to cross a road or something. It is about that community involvement that that really helps. And we in one of our hospitals, we have a lot of volunteers who will sit with them, you know, sing a song for them or, you know, just uh, paint their nails. So getting them, you know, engaged in activities really help them to flourish. Thank you so much for sharing that. What do you find works best with patients in terms of combat and loneliness if they say, for example, they don't have friends or family visiting? How would you manage someone's loneliness? Yeah, I think the key key points I would say are, you know, number one, having some routine, uh, you know, you know, having a routine is really helpful because if somebody is lonely, it's easy for them to say, I'm only lonely. I don't need to get up and get ready. Uh, you know, what am I getting ready for? So it is about, you know, having that regular habits uh, and also reaching out, uh, even though they may not have very close family or friends, but they could reach out at the same time. Uh, the services can reach out as well, like, you know, uh, social prescribing. Uh, I, I, I have... Uh, a patient who likes uh, the trains. So we try to link that person with, uh, uh, you know, the local train museum uh, and also people like fishing, people like to go to the shops. So it is about linking people with their interests uh, and uh, social prescribing definitely helps, uh, which can be uh, accessed through their local GP surgery. Uh, and then having that regular conversation, you know, if possible, uh, and also uh, even doing some charitable work, just because somebody is older doesn't mean that, you know, they, they can only receive uh, help. They can actually uh, provide help. They can support. They can do some, you know, talking to people even older than them, people who are vulnerable than them, which many of my uh, older adults do actually. Uh, they will they will they will ring their friends, they will ding, ring their cousins. So you know not only receiving help, providing help, uh, you know, like people who uh, go to like church, uh, you know they can have uh, you know church groups, 
they can have common interests like rambling groups or various things. Uh, you know, they all can provide, you know, support each other. That is important. Having adequate exercise, you know, whether we like it or not, go out and get fresh air uh, and adequate food, you know, make sure that they've got food adequately and getting their physical health regularly checked. You know, having a healthy body and mind is really important to, uh, you know, keep on tackling the loneliness. Thank you so much, Krish. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much, Ella. Take care.